Welcome to Naylor's Natter. Follow us on Twitter at PNA1977. Just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA 1977 on Twitter. Just talking to teachers. Okay, then. So, hello, Stephen, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Phil. Right, so full disclosure for listeners, um, I've just been saying off air, this feels a little bit like an appraisal of more than a podcast. So for listeners who aren't aware, um, Stephen was the reason that I went to Blackpool in the first place. So Stephen was my head teacher when I got appointed in 2013 at St Mary's. Uh, and then he was the CEO of BBC Matt for the time that I was, um, well, still assistant editor at St Mary's and doing the research school. So as I said in last week's podcast, if you get a deferential tone from me this time, it's it's very much that way. And I've got the added added pressure of it being an, a, a video as well as an audio on this end. It may not come to you, listeners, as that, but at the moment we are both looking at each other um, across a screen. So welcome, Stephen. Thanks very much for doing this. No problem, Phil. Right, so if you can just tell listeners a little bit about your kind of journey to this point and your career um, and take us up to where we're up to with today's book, which we'll be talking about, which is Educating with Purpose. Okay, uh, so started over 30 years ago in uh, Blackburn um, and it was quite interesting because it was a really, really rich multicultural, multi-faith school. Uh, I was there as a teacher, kind of science, chemistry. I moved to St. Helens to De La Salle uh, where I worked for four or five years as the head of science and then went into Lancaster which was an interesting place partly because it still had grammar schools um, and I was a deputy head there and really responsibility for curriculum uh, and then I became head teacher of St Mary's in 2000 uh, where I was for 13-14 years including one year where I was exec head uh, working with the primary school before we formed the trust which was Bebsima uh, where our CEO for six years and that involved the 11 to 18 school St Mary's where I was uh, head and two one-formentary uh, Catholic primary schools, Christ the King uh, and St Cuthbert's. I've done work outside, leading heads around table for a number of years, um, and just generally enjoyed myself in a fabulous career. Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about, and I keep showing the, the book, but for those that can see it on the website, there you are, so it's Educating with Purpose. So this is a new book, it's a John Cat book, uh, but this is not Stephen's first book. So Stephen's first book was Liminal Leadership, so I think that was 2016. And in chapter one of Why We Educate, you started off with a story about a priest and a taxi driver from that book. So could you just uh, share that story with listeners, please, Stephen? Yeah, uh, this is thanks to Father Peter, one of his sermons, uh, just to show that I was listening. Um, and he basically talks about a, a priest and a taxi driver who die and go to heaven. Uh, and the, the priest approaches St. Peter at the pearly gates and he says, OK, uh, Father, it's two years of purgatory for you. And then back here. So the priest goes off, does his two years uh, and then he comes back uh, and he says, just out of interest, what happened to the taxi driver? Uh, and St. Peter says, oh, he went straight in. Uh, and, and the priest was a bit upset about this because he you know, served the church well and he had been a good uh, shepherd to the people. And he said, how can we get in? And he said, well, the, the problem is, Father, that when you used to preach, people fell asleep. But when he drove, they prayed. <laughs> um, and, and it's kind of one of those stories that just kind of sticks with you around kind of purpose and metrics uh, and how you can end up with some odd situations if you measure too narrowly. Um, and, and so... It started a reasonable way and it was a nice link in uh, and the story always kind of goes down quite well when I'm chatting with people uh, because they kind of get a sense of where you're going to start going. 
Yeah, and then following on from that in terms of where we are going. So I'm going to kind of take listeners through the book, but not fully, because we know it's been extremely popular so far, and we know that it's seen it popped up quite a few times on Twitter. But we don't want to go through the whole book. We want to leave the uh, the listener wanting more. So we'll we'll take in a kind of whistle stop tour of each of the chapters. And um, when we look at the next chapter, so we talk about the last decade has been focused on what works, so the evidence and research based movement. Mm. But has the greater focus on the intellectual meant less time for other aspects of education and, and what do you feel has been the impact of that? Uh, the, the simple answer is yes, but if I can just take a step back from that, because one of the, the kind of things about writing the book is I had a nervousness about making sure that we didn't, didn't denigrate uh, the, the importance of, of of looking at kind of uh, the knowledge and what we're actually teaching children in terms of the content or undermining the work that the evidence uh, based movement had done because I kind of consider it really, really important. Um, and if I'm honest, if I'd been writing the book 15 years ago, I probably would have been saying we're, we don't concentrate enough on it. Um, but it needs to be seen within a wider perspective. So uh, David Dada has got that kind of, you know, that lovely phrase about making kids cleverer. Uh, and the idea that we don't do that within education strikes me as frankly bonkers. But it's, it's what I describe as, um, or is described as, as, as a construct under representation. In other words, I see education as bigger than just the intellectual. So where we just focus on the intellectual and what works there, to me, it doesn't capture all the important parts of education. And that was part of what was behind writing the book to say, well, you know, there's a whole series of things which we might legitimately want to come out of education, all of which are important and, and we mustn't lose sight of them. And so, you know, I talk in the book about pupils being more confident about them being happier and kind of that more responsible in terms of uh, moral or, or, or socially. Um, but I think there are some things that, that would worry you. So the OECD report that came out in 2019, which looked at PISA 2018, when we have our 15 year olds and they are 69 out of 72 in the rank around their attitudes towards life satisfaction, if you like how happy they are with their lives, that, that's something that worries me. Um, and it's not necessarily there's, a, there's even a correlation or some kind of causal link, but you only have so much time. And I think one of the calls within the book is just to that rebalancing to make sure that the other important elements of education uh, are, are not lost. And I say, no way did I want to denigrate the importance of, of, of content, uh, of, the, of the knowledge. So, I mean, following on from that, so, I mean, listeners will be aware that, you know, in terms of the, the rebalancing, you were very much at the forefront and a pioneer in the evidence-based and research-based movement mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, being one of the first research schools and certainly, you know, the opportunity area research schools. But, um, you know, in terms of moving forward for the next decade, you've talked there about the purpose of education moving to the heart of the educational debate. So why is it really important that we kind of balance those two? Yeah, I think we look at what we mustn't lose is, is kind of what we think uh, works or what the better bets are. So you don't want to lose that. But what you do want to do is to kind of link it to, to why you might be doing it. And so the kind of the example uh, that you see within the book is the one um, that was in a, a paper uh, by Biesta, which looked at, uh, say, homework for primary school children, which in terms of the impact on the academic, the intellectual outcomes might be limited. But in terms of them taking responsibility for their learning, which might not be the metric we used, that actually could be really important because they've got to take their own responsibility beyond the gaze of the teacher. And that could have been really powerful for those children during the lockdown that we experienced. And also as they move on into uh, secondary school, where 
that does take on more importance. So one of the things you've got to link is, 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 is what you're doing and what the outcome is. Why are we doing it? Uh, and this is that kind of whole idea of a teleological practice that we're actually, we do have endpoints. We are trying to achieve them. Um, and, and so group work, you know, if you're on Twitter now, group work takes a battering. But in terms of being able to listen to other ideas, uh, to discuss, uh, to, to, to kind of work at a social dimension with uh, other people, it could be actually quite powerful, even if it doesn't lead to significant gains in the intellectual. And that's why you want to look at purpose, because linking back into, say, Cleverlands and, and, and Lucy Crean's work, I think it was Japan, and I apologise if it wasn't, but, but they looked very much in the early years of, of education towards that socialization, to, to being part of something. Uh, and so whenever we're doing a, a, a how or a what, I think we've got to link it to a why. I think we've got to link it to a purpose. What is it that we're trying to achieve? And that goes back to the importance of, yes, we want to develop the intellect, but there are also other aspects of the development of a child that we would, that we would seek to, to develop. No, absolutely. And I think that's something that we've, we kind of touched on with the podcast that we very much started as, and you'll know this because you were there at the inception of the yeah. of the idea, crazy as it was at the time, that we would just do an, an evidence and research based podcast. But actually, you know, the more that we've got into that, the kind of the broader we've gone across teaching as a whole. And we, we have taken in quite a lot of, you know, why people would do things, not just you know, how things work or, you know, the, what the best evidence is. We've kind of taken in a wider range of presenters as well. Um, so speaking about different people's philosophies of education, you outline in the book the four philosophies of education. So could you just maybe share those with listeners? Yeah. Uh, and this is work that those people have come up with. The, the first person I came across it was Dylan William. Uh, and, and so the kind of the four, they look at personal empowerment, uh, you know, fulfilling the potential of the child. And then this kind of cultural transmission, uh, and that tends to be the phrase, the best which has been thought or said. Um, and then you've got kind of preparation for, for work, for employment, and then you've got preparation for citizenship, which is about kind of the, the development of social capital uh, within communities. So those are the kind of four uh, that interplay and that people tend to talk of. And then into chapter three, and you talk about personal empowerment. So, I mean, I really like the way that you kind of reflected on your own upbringing and talked about that and how it's influenced your thinking. And, um, you know, with it, you don't have to go into the decade, Stephen, because um, <laughs> when I go into the decade and I start talking about the 1970s, when, you know, I, I was I start looking at that as it's, it's only 20 years ago. And then suddenly you look around and realise that it's, you know, it's 40 years ago. But how has that kind of your upbringing influenced your thinking? Yeah, I I mean, I always describe it as a privileged upbringing. You know, it, it really was blessed. And it, it wasn't that we had a lot of money. Neither mum nor dad had degrees uh, when they got married. They gained those much later in life. Um, so it, it's not that there was lots of money about. Uh, but what it was is it was a very stable and very loving family environment in which I grew up in. Uh, and that really, really helps when you're growing up as a young person to know that you're loved, uh, that the, you know there's food on the table uh, morning and in, in afternoon and in the evening, that there's somebody that you can talk to. Um, and so it kind of influenced quite a bit. And I think the story that I tell within the book is about dad as a, as a Vincentian. And, and if you don't know the Vincentians, they're the, the kind of a, a group who work in terms of social action and look after some of the poorer uh, people within the community uh, and so dad didn't drive 
And once I passed my driving test, I became dad's driver uh, and his box carrier. Uh, and so I can go back to the times that, whether it's around Christmas or weekends and in the evening, when I was back from university, uh, I'd be kind of d- down to the shops with dad. We'd bundle up a couple of um, trolleys worth of stuff. It'd get separated into boxes. And then dad would have me going around and lumping things into various family homes. And you just looked at what people did not have. Uh, the absolute basics, food on the table. Um, and I'm sure that influences you. You can't help but be moved. Um, and it wasn't the question of why were they in that place? It was just purely being there for them and meeting that need. And so that that kind of um, upbringing uh, mattered. But it, without going on too, too much about this film, but, you know, I can go back to the decades. I was born in the 60s. And in the 60s, when I was born, there was no protection in law for people in terms of gender, or people in terms of race or disability. In fact, if you like, discrimination was perfectly legal. So over my lifetime, uh, with the enactment of of various statutes, uh, you could see how people have been given legal protection, even if that hasn't always worked through to the actuality of it. So there's different things that, you know, that that influence your thinking that the part of growing you as you grow up. Yeah, and it's something that we're going to talk about later on in the conversation around your work, you know, in disadvantaged communities and about the fact of how context matters, um, which is a topic you touch on in the book later on. But for now, we're going to talk about the work of Paolo Freire. So how has that work developed your thinking, particularly in the organisation of education? Mm. Well, I think it's it, it's reasonable to disclose at this point that actually I read the book years, decades after it was written. So for a large part of my my, my career, I actually didn't know Freire's work. Um, yet some of the things kind of resonated uh, with me even prior. And part of writing the book was to try and give people an introduction to some of some of the works that I think are important just to get you thinking about education and what it might be. And th- this is, is a key one because that idea of empowerment uh, plays so, so powerfully. Um, and that, you know, empowerment of the child, the development of the child and, and doing it more holistically plays out in various ways. So, you know, anybody who's read the blog will know I'm, I'm just absolutely passionate in terms of a rejection of the EBAC. Um, I, I just think it's a bonkers idea uh, for lots of different reasons. Um, and yet I would support a core curriculum. I'd probably be within English, maths and science. And beyond that, I would actually want children to find courses that they enjoyed that were relevant to them. And if you like, that's part of what I'd see as part of that empowerment. Um, the only way you kind of get used to making decisions and good at making decisions and believe you can make decisions is actually making decisions. To actually be able to make them and shape and influence uh, yourself and, 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 and what you do and believing that you can actually have an impact on your own life. In other words, it's not predestined. Um, the choices I make can influence it and I can make choices. Um, and, and, and that became a critically important part of what we did, as well as seeing it from a, a balanced education. Um, and that's part of, I think, the challenge to the current system about how balanced some of the education is, including the, the curriculum. Um, and so that's where you, you look at it, but I think there's all of the powerful threads that that start coming through for different communities. Uh, so as, as I was in the classroom, 
key gender issues were around girls and science and and it was attainment in science was so low uh, then moving on to a levels was so low and so so kind of looking at projects and ways of engaging girls in science which i think were hugely successful if you look at what happened now was part of of that growing up and that experience um and that kind of rejection of stereotypes and and what work might do and what courses uh, and, and syllabus was appropriate for them so yeah different ways comes through but relevance and balance becomes key definitely and again just to give listeners a bit of context so we're recording this on embargo day so um i can't go into any details but i bet stephen's been itching to be in today and this was one of his favorite days i'm sure in the education calendar um but you know in terms of the next question we're looking at positions of authority and and for listeners Stephen mentioned before but Stephen's held leadership positions you know for a long time of his career and in fact you know you could say extremely youthful head teacher weren't you at 36 or 37 when he started at St. Mary's. yeah, yeah. So, you know, if, if, you know, listeners who've not got the book yet in terms of, you know, the depth of Stephen's experience of positions of authority, you know, there's, there's nobody with more experience in terms of that. But positions of authority you've written in the book are primarily about responsibility, not power, which I love. But, you know, without getting too political, um, <laughs> do you not see this? Be easy. It's not going to be easy. No. Do you see this in society and schools in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I... I you could almost look at our political leadership at the minute and weep um, because it seems to be about being in positions of power and, and they've just failed to take responsibility uh, for both uh, the A-level um, and the GCSE problems. And a number of us were talking about some, if not all, of the difficulties. Uh, you couldn't predict what the algorithm would do because nobody would release the algorithm. But you could see the impact on improving schools, disadvantaged communities prior. Um, but when I look in schools, I, I see so much promise and, and in other areas of life as well, uh, where people do come from quite an ethical and moral perspective. Um, and, and there will be a few. And, you know, we talk in the book about flattening the grass um, uh, and and the number of exclusions coming out of some schools, some trusts, which I just find as, as, as unacceptable. But if you're looking at the overwhelming majority of people, they 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 accept the responsibility. Um, and yes, they do have to have the authority to make decisions. But I think it's something that kind of grows with the maturity as well. Um, so the first thing is kind of like I'm in charge. But 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 when you suddenly realise you're in charge, you suddenly look at the responsibilities you have to, to the staff that you lead and to the pupils, to the community, to the system in general. Uh, and that was certainly a, a kind of a massive area of growth for me over the 20 years in Blackpool, uh, from wanting to kind of, you know, we want to be the best school in Blackpool to realising that's a narrow perspective uh, and moving to that kind of greater perspective of all the children in Blackpool and how important they were and that your success cannot come at the cost of another organisation or to another child or young person. Um, so I... That, that idea of responsibility has absolutely got to be key because then you begin to move into a service mentality uh, and you're here to serve, not to lord it over and, and back into the work around Freire and, and, and the oppressed. Um, that becomes really, really important. And again, for listeners' context, um, Stephen as a head teacher would never have asked us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And he was always the first person out 
to do so if there ever there was you know an incident that needed dealing with you could bet your bottom dollar that Stephen would be the first person out you know helping supporting leading on whatever that would be uh, and I remember being impressed by that from kind of from day one but in, in terms of the, the kind of wider conversation I think that the education profession has shown itself to be what you've talked about there mm. that you know, during the lockdown the leadership's been shown by teachers by senior leaders by you know CEOs across the country where we've gone into bat regardless of whatever the circumstances are and nobody has complained and nobody has said I'm not doing that obviously you know reasonable adjustments have to be made and I understand that the unions have all helped with that but you know teachers you know to, to, to for the for the I was going to call him the head teacher there, for the prime minister to come out and say you know, it's a moral duty. Well, I don't think, you know, teachers have done anything but show moral duty right the way through this pandemic and obviously before. Absolutely. I mean, hats off to the people who've been leading and working in schools uh, and working from home to work in schools. Um, and, you, you know, you, you have a sense, partly from the Heads Round Table, of the work that's gone on across the country. But when I look at some of the work done locally within uh, Blackpool, which I, I'm, I'm just more familiar with, uh, they're looking after the vulnerable, they're having eyes on, they're making sure that, that young people were safe, um, as well as all the work done around food poverty that you saw, about trying to continue to run courses, engage some of those young people, step in when you know there's no technology available. There's so many examples of just great, great leadership. Uh, that you're seeing across, I see it across education, but you could say, talk about social services, you could talk about health, uh, that kind of concept of public service, you know, was never more true uh, than during that time of lockdown. And it's a time that we might see again, you know, we can't rule that out over the next six to 12 months. No, absolutely. Okay, so moving on slightly now, so we're going to talk about the work of Arnold and Hirsch. Um, so how influential was that work in your formation of um, the Beb C. Matt Trust Reading Canon and Programme? And do you mind filling his listeners in? I mean, we have spoke about it before. Um, I spoke about the work that you've done with that and uh, with Becky Jones at St Mary's um, with Doug Lamov, actually. So this oh, may be familiar with a little bit, but if you just fill us in a little bit about how you came up with the canon and how influential was the work of Arnold and Hirsch on that formation. Uh, I'd love to tell you how I came up with the canon. I basically asked uh, Simon, would he ask Jenna to come up with the canon? Um, <laughs> so I can take no credit whatsoever. But if I, if I go back to, to, to kind of the sense of this is that um, our route through was really where we're beginning to look at results and spot patterns. And one of the patterns was, was the, the issue of literacy that many young people have. Um, and linked in with that things like vocabulary ability to decode ability to read uh, ability to gain understanding from what's being read and so the the literary canon was one of a number uh, of different um things that have been introduced and it's not just at st mary's now i mean it's, it's the, the school sitting right across the way of blackpool and a wonderful group of of kind of literacy leads uh, that, that i work with in blackpool to, to, to do this work um and so some of it came out of pure practicality. And I would I'd kind of separate Arnold off a little bit. Uh, and I'll talk about why, probably in answer to future questions. Um, but, but the work of, of Hirsch, and, and most people are probably familiar with the book, The Schools We Have, uh, The Schools We Need and Why We Don't Have Them, which was kind of 99. The book I talk about in Educating with Purpose is the earlier one, it's about 10 years earlier, where he's talking about cultural literacy. Uh, and he's talking about what it is that as adults we wish to share, to pass down to future generations. 
Uh, and he talks about it as, as kind of anthropological in sense, in so much as you see this happening in human communities across the world. Um, and, and I think it's such a powerful, interesting, and also problematic area. Because who decides what to pass down? And this is where Hirsch uh, and, and Freire, they kind of work together, yet balance each other out and challenge each other. Uh, because Hirsch would be saying, well, kind of at a, at a national level, there are a whole series of, of terms and events that you would need to understand, to understand people within the culture and the writing within the culture and books. Um, but one of Freire's challenges within that is, who decides that? And you can see that in things like decolonization of the curriculum, choices made around English literature texts, um, and, 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 and kind of gender representation within the curriculum. Who decides what we pass on is a really, really powerful question. Um, and it tends to be the powerful. And so you've got this real difficult play out about how much do we decide centrally at a national level because some of that would make sense that we can communicate with each other as a nation, as, as, as people within it. How much do you lead to a local level? If you leave it all to a local level, do we miss the national? Um, and so this idea of cultural literacy, I think, is important and, and possibly needs, we need to come back and revisit it, particularly as we're seeing uh, curriculum push towards a subject level at primary school. Uh, because it's, cultural literacy is different. We kind of go and explain more about this in the book that it's, it's not the specialist knowledge, but it's a knowledge that you would wish to hold below that, but above the kind of general chit chat words that we would use. Um, and so kind of a long answer in terms of the, of the canon, it influenced my underneath thinking. Uh, so one of the things that, that Simon and Jenna worked on when they came together with the canon is, what are the themes within the books? So, so what are the themes that we're looking to explore? Uh, and there might be some around feminism and, and, and issues of gender. There's some around culture and race. Um, so that we're, we're kind of exploring big questions we have. Uh, because Hirsch, you know, all credit to him, kind of talks about it as, as a description, not a prescription. So he kind of isn't saying, oh, you need to read these books. He just said, well, actually, these are the kind of things you need to know so that when you read books, you'll have an understanding of them because the, the authors don't write everything. There's things that you need to know and you need to bring to the book to understand them. Um, an example would be we've got Pride and Prejudice as one of the books that all children will read whilst they're at St. Mary's. Without an understanding of women's role in, in, in the kind of the 18th century, the late 1700s, you've no idea why Lizzie's behavior is so outrageous uh, in terms of rejecting the parson uh, or why Lydia, you know, it, that would just be totally unacceptable. You've got to have an understanding of, of the place of women uh, within that late 18th century. So, it, I mean, it was really interesting. And, and the more, more I know, the more I kind of tie myself in knots as you're trying to meet different needs. Uh, but I think that that's part of the process of moving forward. Let me stop there, Phil, because uh, quite a long answer there. No, that's good. And in terms of, again, in terms of listeners, I can put links to um, Simon Eccles, who's the head at St. Mary's, uh, Becky Jones, who's also quite active on Twitter, so I can mm. share how they came up with some of that sort of stuff. And and that's a good example, again, of how school leaders have kind of stepped up to do that. So I know that at, at my school now, we are finding a way 
to continue with the reading canon in the new hermetically sealed bubbles. You know, we're looking at, you know, some lesson time with virtually recorded reading sessions from English teachers to put into those bubbles. So, you know, it's another great example of school leaders trying to work around the restrictions. Um, just revisiting another theme, Stephen, if we may. So the four philosophies of education you talked about before, but later on in the book, you kind of unpick those a little bit more. Uh, so the question really is, are those four uh, philosophies of education mutually exclusive, you know, competing philosophies, or are they interlinking and, and kind of mutually supportive? The answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's one of, I tend to be a, a kind of a glass half full kind of person. So um, I, I kind of see them as interlinking and mutually supportive, but with only so much time, and that's the limitation that we have, you are in a situation where you have to determine priorities. Uh, and and, and uh, more of one, uh, particularly if it's an overemphasis, kind of naturally means uh, less of another. But this is where it's kind of looking at Arnold uh, a little bit, because Arnold's work was actually about social justice. So um, the, the, the best which has been thought and said wasn't referring to an individual knowledge or to particular works or pieces. What he was talking about was, was bringing what he, what he described as free thought to try and solve social problems that they were experiencing in the Victorian time. I mean, it was industrial revolution, it was massive change. And, and although Freire comes at it from a different basis and perspective, again, it's that looking at, 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 this, at that issue of social justice. And I can see that when I look back at my career as, as one of the underpinning kind of thoughts. How do we create a more just and fair society? Bringing a knowledge to it, bringing a development of, of the child and holistically and empowering them, looking at employment, because you know that was one of the big, big areas uh, that need to look at in terms of social justice. Um, because of poverty and, and, and people, you know, from lower socioeconomic brackets who just don't have choices that other people have in life. So I, I kind of see them as working together, but the, the challenge is getting the balance to be right within your context. Um, and, and I mean, I, I mentioned in the book that I, I've been to Wellington College and what a beautiful college. I, I've no idea what you need to be successful at Wellington and I doubt I've got it. Um, but they are likely to be able to make certain assumptions about the young people that they educate. And we wouldn't be able to necessarily make the same assumption about the young people who come to our schools in Blackpool who we educate because of this just significantly different backgrounds and experiences that they have. And so that kind of influences, and we talk about context matters later on in the book. Uh, and, and I think we've got a question later on, Phil, as well about it, but it's, it's looking at this to see them as, as, as ways of supporting, but the balance of them is critical. And that's where I just think we need to rebalance what we're doing now um, in terms of looking at kind of personal empowerment and giving young people choice and ownership of what they're doing and making sure that there is space, not just for thought, but for action within the curriculum. Um, and, you know, kind of great examples, Black Lives Matter, uh, Greta Thornburg and climate change, you know, sh should there be time for young people to go out and campaign? That, 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 that's a fundamental question that schools have to answer. So if, if, if children left on a Friday afternoon to go to a Black Lives Matter campaign um, or a, a, a kind of a climate change campaign, would you be congratulating them or putting them in detention? And why? 
and, and, and are you happy with that? Because other people would have the perspective, no, they need to be in school learning about these matters. Other people would say, no, they need to learn about them, but then they need to act upon them. Um, and, and so it's, it's important to, to see that and determine where you stand. And climate change, uh, Stephen, as you'll know, as a science teacher, and I didn't realise as well, listeners, that um, the revision guides that no doubt some of you of my vintage would have used with the class um, <laughs> for, the, for the SATs exams when we used to be getting, you know, grade sevens across the board at St Hilda's um, in Burnley years ago. Stephen actually wrote those revision guides. I didn't realise that as well until yeah. quite recently. He very modestly uh, mentioned that to us. So in terms of uh, climate change, when it annoys me, as it will you, Stephen, that, it, it, you know, people and politicians always say you should teach climate change. And I think I must have been doing it wrong all this time because I'm fairly sure it's been a staple part of the Key Stage 3 curriculum and the GCSE for a long time. And, and this is part of that kind of concept of praxis. Uh, you, you've got to have thoughts. You've got to think about what you're doing. What you don't want is unthinking actions. But then there's a point at which actually you do have to do something. Um, and, and, and it's... It's kind of where we see that within education and whether we see it as part of a school responsibility or is it not a school responsibility? And that in some ways will give a, a, a where you balance out these various issues and what you give time to. We're going to skip my question and move into the context matters uh, section, Stephen, if that's OK. Yeah. So um, for listeners, and we, we are very fortunate these days that we do have listeners both across the country and across the world. So I've been doing a little bit of looking into, uh, you know, we've, we've been in the top 10 podcasts in Trinidad and Tobago for the last nice. uh, couple of weeks. I'm not quite sure how that comes about. but I get, Living uh, the dream, Phil. Living, living the, dream. the dream. So for, for, for listeners, wherever you might be, it's worth putting into context, um, you know, the, the work of Stephen Dunn in Blackpool and about the schools in Blackpool. So I'm going to read from the book, Stephen, if that's OK. So um, here's the data for the three schools in the trust of which Stephen was the CEO. So St Mary's, which is 11 to 18 school, has 23% of pupils from the bottom 1% of the most deprived areas in England and Wales using data from the uh, IMD. 82% of pupils from the bottom third of the most deprived areas. And Christ the King and St Cuthbert's, both one form entry primary schools, have 58% and 31% of pupils from the bottom 1% of the most deprived areas, respectively. Both have more than 80% of pupils from the bottom third of the most deprived areas. So in terms of, of context matters, and it's just worth putting in there, just, you know, if in terms of the school that, that, that I'm working at now, Stephen, as you know, um, we started lockdown with 74% of pupils on pupil premium. I think we're now touching 77% of pupils qualifying for the pupil premium for the intake coming in. So in terms of context matters, um, could you just talk to listeners a little bit about the, um, the extract from your Lever speech, which I was fortunate enough to be in the, the audience for, um, and how things have changed for disadvantaged communities over the last 20 years and more pertinently, perhaps, you know, over the last six months? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's important when you just kind of look at those statistics that it's hard to grasp. Uh, it's not just the amount in terms of the numbers. It is the depth of poverty. Uh, and what uh, a gentleman called Professor Lee Majors has, has been talking about is actually at these extremes where you have profound poverty, uh, there isn't much social mobility. Uh, and what he says is basically social mobility happens in the middle of the continuum. There's people at the top end who seem to have been at the top end forever. And there's people at the lower end who seem to be at the lower end forever. Um, and so part of the leaving speech was talking about the work that we were doing. And we'd just been part of it was a joint EEF Sunday Times appeal, which had raised a massive amount of money for, for a number of disadvantaged areas across uh, England. And we'd spent 
£6,000. And can I just mention Aldi? God bless Aldi. Uh, they, they were fabulous to work with. £6,000 at Aldi. The amount of stuff we got for £6,000 filled minibuses. Uh, and these were made up into food parcels alongside uh, getting some, um, some fresh meat for families for over Christmas. And, and the thing about the fresh meat is what, we, what was interesting is what we were talking about was things like mince and sausage because we couldn't assume they had a cooker. And when you, when you hear that, that is heartbreaking. Um, and then we spent £9,000 on energy vouchers for the families uh, because even if we got them the food, some of them couldn't afford the, the kind of the cooking because they were still trying to heat the homes and some had even given up on trying to heat the homes because they just didn't have the money. So that kind of depth of poverty is, is difficult for, for many of us to actually grasp. Uh, and so when people are saying, you know, they've got to pull themselves up by, by the bootlaces, what happens if you haven't got bootlaces? And, and that's where you kind of begin to capture some of what we see within Blackpool. Uh, and so I, I think the thing that, that I would say most noticeably happened over the 20 years that has in headship is over the first 10 years, the support available for those most deprived families in terms of simple things like children's centres, short, short start centres, uh, kind of full service schools uh, that we're looking at. Support from the local authority and the council was quite significant. And then in the second 10 years, were, there, were, there were years of austerity. That support started to disappear till it pretty much vanished. Uh, and I, you know, it will always be something that um, I'll find difficult that one of the final jobs I did, as I did as a CEO was to close the children's centre at St Cuthbert's, which is right next to where you are, Phil. So you know the area well. Um, but the money, th there was no money. It, it, it had been funded and supported and, and the money had just stopped. Um, and that that means that it's it's really, really tough for those families. And and kind of in terms of supporting those long-term disadvantage, it is the concept of social justice about raising up a whole community rather than a concept of social mobility, which if we're not careful, just moves out one or two people who could have been really helpful in the local community. Um, and, and that kind of the long-term disadvantage and how we might support, education has a part to play, but the joined up thinking needs to be profoundly different. Um, you look at things like health needs to be linked in, particular issues of mental health. You look at housing, uh, and in Blackpool housing, it was a particular issue. We used to have massive churn within the town, still have to an extent, but it was largely because um, landlords could charge fees each time there was a new person into the accommodation. So people used to change accommodation every six months because that was the length of the, of the tenancy that they could get. Um, and so that just produced churn, you know, talk about local economies um, and, and, and the jobs so that people just aren't as poor. And, and it all connects up about the whole kind of raising of a whole term community, because, you know, it, it, we know the link between education outcomes and social deprivation. And so one of the things that if you look and you, you know, you're just blunt, how could we improve education outcomes? Let's just have far fewer poor people. Let's, let's find ways that we don't have people in such depths of poverty um, that, that, that we can kind of support them in terms of the health outcomes, uh, the, the kind of educational outcomes uh, and support for the contribution that they can then feed back in. And that might be a very bizarre outcome of the, the centre assessed grades uh, that, it, that it doesn't cut off 
opportunities for some young people too soon. Uh, and the same for the A-levels going to university. It could be quite interesting. What happened if we gave them a chance? You know, where, where would it lead to? Mm. And it's a special kind of uh, leadership that's required to work within th these areas in the sense that, yes, you know, you're trying to help improve educational outcomes, you're trying to improve outcomes across the board, but also, you know, and this is a topic that we don't probably want to get into, but you are routinely hammered by the inspectorate in terms of, you know, I mean, I was looking at the, the answers yesterday, and I might have to cut some of this part from our esteemed education secretary, who, you know, should I as a school leader or should you during your 20 years of being a school leader have made any of the errors that he's made over the last, would you have been able to blame, deflect? Not a chance. You would have been out of a job within no time and, you know, there'd been a complete you know, category four, replace the leadership team and off we go again. So it's a really special type of person that, that wants to work within those those schools and certainly for 20 years. Oh, I mean, you know, I look at the people that we lost around Blackpool and, and the people who've come into work. And, you know, I, I, so Phil's head teacher is called Neil and, and, and the CEO is John. And I remember listening to Neil who had walked in. Uh, did you hear about the boathouse? Yes. And, and the yeah. pupils were kind of like in, in some kind of side unit. And he just said, no, we've got to get them all back in. And you, you look at the difficulty and the challenge that, that, that Neil will have faced and the teachers will have faced in, in re-educating and educating those young people and achieving the outcomes in a, in a situation which is not forgiving. Um, you know, I, I've, I've said it before so many times, Ofsted essentially measures the social deprivation of, of your intake. That, that's not a helpful school improvement strategy. Um, performance tables as well. You, you know, what we need to do is, 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 the, is the free school for the Chinese girls. Um, you know, they, they would just smash it out of the park. Uh, why? Because we know that that, that that those are the groups that tend to perform most highly. Um, and so if you're not careful, the last place you want to be is in some of these most deprived communities. But the heart and the soul and the purpose that, that the people bring into Blackpool as they, as they try and work, um, it, it's just been great to see over 20 years, you know, real privilege. OK, so moving into when this podcast is released, it's probably going to be the Friday before we go back to school. So goodness knows what has happened before then, Stephen. And we're already talking two weeks in, uh, two weeks into the future. But we're very much in to to kind of bring back a phrase from your previous book in a liminal space. And we're likely to re-enter the world very tentatively in September, really changed. So how will these changes manifest themselves, do you think, both in society and more pertinently in schools? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to to look too far ahead almost because I think there's going to be a period of whether it's one or two years where we're almost kind of living with COVID um, and, and that's going to be a challenge in itself so I, I can't see a situation in which we're not going to have school closures over the next 12 months and I, I could be wrong I'm, you know I'm, I'm looking into the future my guess is, is probably as good and as bad as anybody else's uh, but it's, it's how we we kind of manage that and what kind of um, society we want to become is, is the bigger question. And that goes back to purpose. It goes back to telos. It goes back to endpoint. And although I can kind of look at the last 10 years and be depressed about some of the things uh, in terms of provision for the most disadvantaged, I mean, one of the things that became really positive, and I, maybe I'm you know, looking for, for small grasps, grains of comfort, was the fact that children who were entitled to free school meals actually got vouchers over Easter May half term in the summer. 
Um, and so in terms of, of trying to move some things forward, that would be great. It costs £200 a child per annum to make sure that they had food during uh, that, the, 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 the term breaks, the holiday times. Uh, and that would be great. Um, also, you wonder where those young people will be in terms of their own kind of mental health. And there is, a, there is an opportunity of norming things for them, getting them back into routine, which I think would be powerful. But I think there will also be some pupils who will have been deeply affected. And, and, and there will be a loss of life that they'll have experienced in terms of parents, or grandparents, it will be greater in disadvantaged communities, it will be greater in BMAE communities. Uh, and for those young people, we need to meet that, that kind of trauma, they might call it, in, in, in terms of a life event that, that, that could have affected them deeply. And then there's other things about people's employment. How much has that changed? And, and, and I always see schools as social places. Uh, the human places, the relationships is so critical. So I don't think we're all going to go online forever. I don't think that's desirable. But parents working from home might be looking for different kind of education further down the line. That, that, that's much further down the line. But that will play off against people who can't. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like a, a long answer to say, I've not a clue, Phil. I've genuinely, you look and you think part of it is, is living the experience of it. But, but through all the bits and bobs and the ups and downs, I think we need to look at and this whole idea of tell us the end point. And I just think I, I just hope that we use it as an opportunity to become a much fairer and more just society, a less extreme society in terms of the levels of deprivation that some people experience. And schools will have a significant part in that, uh, both in terms of themselves as social uh, institutions and looking after those needs of pupils as well as kind of learning places. Um, and so I, I just, I, I see it and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that coming out of what had been a time of great suffering, that there is the potential to make changes and moves to the for the better and to a better place. But we've got to articulate those in terms of the justice for society and, and particularly in terms of the priority we place on those most disadvantaged communities and the children within them uh, and stopping that kind of intergenerational poverty. Mm, absolutely. And if listeners uh, want to know more about what uh, the next decade holds, then um, that's the last chapter in the book. So Stephen talks about what's going to be, uh, you know, so I'll leave you wanting more there in terms of what your views are for the next 10 years in education. Right, Stephen. So just uh, to finish off with, just want to say a massive thank you for quite a few different things. So thank you firstly for the fact that I'm sitting here today, uh, both as a deputy head teacher in Blackpool, because without without you bringing me across on that uh, fateful day in 2013, which I is I mean, just, just for listeners, uh, this is etched on my memory as uh, I left the Labour ward. Um, at the early hours of the morning uh, with the birth of child two to hot foot it across I lived in Burnley at the time to Blackpool to do a two days interview in one for assistant head teacher at St Mary's so it's kind of etched I can, I can date it perfectly to the uh, 13th of March 2013 so mm. there we go so thank you for that uh, thanks also for being and you know inspirational in terms of the, the research school and the, the kind of the, the birth of the podcast which at the time we were we were hoping would get what, 100 listeners and it might improve a few ticket sales for research at blackpool um but obviously since then it's got a little bit uh, a little bit further reaching than that so thank you for the idea uh, you're welcome phil it's 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 been a joy and as i say i remember that day as well when you came over 
Uh, and I think at the beginning of the day, I think you were running on adrenaline and slowly during the day, I think by the time we got to final interview, uh, I think you could have quite happily put your head on the desk and just had a little sleep. Uh, you did great. You did great. Oh, I remember because at the end of the day, it was the governor's panel. Um, so I just remember looking across the bat and looking at John Younger and, and Dave Slack and just going, I just need to sit down. And they, <laughs> they let me sit down at the end of the day. But yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. And, you know, I wouldn't want to work anywhere else now. And hence the reason that obviously moving on from St. Mary's after, you know, a number of, of great years there and loving being at South Shore now. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Just to tie this up. So obviously we've talked about the book all the way through the interview. So can you just signpost listeners to your very successful blog, where your book is available and any events or speaking arrangements that you're doing in the next uh, couple of months, whether that's in person or virtually? Yeah, the, the, the blog is leadinglearner.me. Um, and obviously the book's available from John Cat. Uh, I know some people kind of use Amazon as well, and you can get it from uh, Amazon. Um, I'd love people to read it and just tell me what they think about it. Hopefully, it will give them some food for thought, uh, possibly affirming them in choices they made, also challenging them in other places. Uh, kind of for me, it's, it's odd because I, I retired full time um, at, at Christmas, but I'm still I'm still speaking to various groups. I got invited to speak to head teachers, which uh, or senior leaders, or sometimes whole school groups, which is great. Uh, and I've always enjoyed that. Uh, I still carry on the work with Head Teachers Roundtable for a bit yet. I, I kind of do feel the person chairing it really should be a practitioner, uh, but they're so busy at the moment. Uh, I feel I should take the strain for a little bit longer uh, on that. Uh, and I also kind of time to be a granddad and uh, probably a better husband, a little bit more present than I've been in the past 30 years. Uh, some of that's going to happen the time ahead. Fantastic. Right. Well, thanks very much again, Stephen. No doubt our paths will be crossing uh, during this academic year. So um, I'm sure that we will see you hopefully in person, but uh, if not, certainly virtually. So thanks again for your time today. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Phil. Thank you. Nailers, Netter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section. Learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers, Netter, just talking to teachers. Following on from last week's conversation on utilising and embedding lockdown learning, I'm talking today with my colleague Bethan on the leadership of CPD in the next academic year. Hi Bethan. Hi Michelle. So what do you think will be the challenges for CPD leaders next year? Gosh, um, with most leaders across the school, there are going to be a few, of course. But I think the main challenge is that the return in September is going to look very, very different to previous September returns. So colleagues are normally very familiar with the inset day setup. And I think following the long period away from school, the return is going to feel very different, of course. So there's going to be arising from that quite a few things to address it might be that the the staff needs have changed a lot in terms of the professional learning that they are going to be wanting or um, needing the pupil needs obviously might be quite different next year compared to what was maybe initially planned for and i think there might be some challenges around re-establishing those those routines with colleagues so very similar to having a new class for the first time and needing to re-establish expectations around behaviour for learning, etc. With colleagues having worked from home for a long period, there's going to be a natural readjustment that's needed for working in the same space together and going back to those routines of professional learning. So I think there's going to be a need to help re-establish that culture 
some schools may have not focused so much on professional learning over the lockdown period, whereas some schools may have made that a, a weekly standing meeting, for example. I know that some of our member schools have, but from whatever situation has arisen, that re-establishment of routines around professional learning is going to be really, really important. Colleagues during the lockdown period have had such different experiences. So some staff have been engaging a lot with their online learning. Other colleagues have been really busy with um, maybe providing homeschooling. So there's such a vast difference in experience there. And I think this was discussed last week as how leaders are going to then harness that celebrate the hard work of colleagues that have spent a lot of time on their CPD, but also not discouraging colleagues who haven't had the time or the space to be able to do that and to make sure that the colleagues are coming together with that. Finally, there is the obvious need to look at maybe online learning. Colleagues might not be able to work in the same space together in the same way as previously if there are social distancing measures. So ensuring that if colleagues haven't been confident using um, online software to engage in professional learning with their team, then ensuring that there are routines established around that. Yeah, and as we heard uh, from the team in recent episodes, there will be many opportunities available through this new familiarity with online learning. But in terms of those barriers and challenges, what could leaders do to overcome this? Well, I think first and foremost, communication is absolutely key. Addressing that elephant in the room. We've all had a very strange experience over the last few months. We recognise that, we understand and we're here to support you in terms of meeting your professional development needs. And as much as possible, talking to colleagues about their experience with professional learning over lockdown, asking whether they've engaged in it, um, was anything particularly interesting that they enjoyed doing? Did they have any challenges with engaging with remote CPD and what were they? How could you be supporting that? And just asking colleagues, you know, what do you feel like you want to learn more about now? in light of the experience that we've all had are you more interested in maybe taking a trauma-informed approach can we provide some support there or would you like to learn more about online delivery in such and such a way so as much as possible speaking to colleagues and trying to understand what they are wanting to learn more about and hear about their experience I would also say be wary of trying to solve all of the problems in one go at the beginning and choosing up to three priorities and communicating these really, really clearly with your colleagues so that everyone is aware that there is a key focus. So there's not the feeling of overwhelm about having to stick to a, a plan that's got 50 moving parts and they, you know, they're struggling to even engage in those initial routines. So don't feel that you have to start September with an incredibly detailed plan for every single day, every single um, week. It's going to be really important to building opportunities to be responsive to your staff with regards to their needs and as you're learning about them through those conversations that I talked about previously. And I think it's completely fine for you to stand up and say this to your staff saying, these are our priorities. The plans aren't completely fixed yet because we're going to respond to the needs as they arise and as we've spoken to you through expressing that, then colleagues will feel comforted knowing that the plans are being designed to respond to their needs rather than having designed a really, really detailed plan to solve a problem that they haven't necessarily been involved in forming their solution. Are there any key principles that they could look at to support? A lot of this comes back to change management principles and the act of creating successful change in an organisation. And one of the key principles with that is taking the time to diagnose the problem first and really understand what the needs of the staff 
are before trying to even start creating change. Often that process is carried out through conversations with staff and through looking at maybe data that you have on people needs, etc. But ensuring that colleagues are involved in the process of the diagnosis so that they can also be involved in building that solution. And that creates shared ownership. There's obviously great attraction there when there is more colleagues who feel like they have ownership of this plan for change in the school. Thank you, Bethan. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about leading CPD, we encourage you to join Cohort 7 of our TDT Associate in CPD Leadership course starting in February 2021. Inquire today at tdtrust.org forward slash CPD hyphen leadership hyphen course. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers.